Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com with host Chris Lackey and Chad Pfeiffer. Today, we continue with our coverage of The Dreams in the Witch House with guest host Ken Height. Today's reader is Dave Stitten. Before we start the show, I want to mention that we are about $600 away from completing our ransom for the reading of The Call of Cthulhu with Andrew Lehman. If you're interested in hearing this, what you need to do is just go to our website, hppodcraft.com, click on the donate button, and donate whatever you can. Every donation will go towards that total, and once we hit $3,000, we're going to release that ransom out for the public, free to download and enjoy by all. So if you have a few bucks, please consider donating. And with that, on with the show. There was one among them, an evil one, wicked. Oh, 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 go on with your nonsense, old woman. These are new days. We don't believe the old foolish tales anymore. These are new days. We don't believe the old foolish tales anymore. You do not believe? Look there. HPPodcraft.com After their long discussion, Elwood and Gilman fall asleep in their chairs. The strange thing to Gilman is, though, that as he's drowsing, that's when he's starting to hear this hellish chant of celebrants. And he seems to understand what they're doing. He knows what they expect. Yeah. He has some kind of knowledge of what's going on, and he can't figure out why he does. He even asks himself, did he sign that black man's book after all? Did he? Who knows? But he finds himself standing in this attic alcove, and this ritual is being performed. I think on the table is the infant boy. The woman is across from him, and she's got this knife. And there's a bowl on the table next to the boy. And she's got this ritual that she's intoning, which reminds Gilman of something out of the Necronomicon. Yes. And then she extends the bowl to him, and he takes it. He's unable to keep from doing it. He's part of what they're doing here. And I think this is all tied on to the ritual that's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the real world, it, right? There's, it's out on that island. There's actually people doing some kind of ritual. Which we find out later. There's some Later on, they said that eyewitnesses saw people on this island doing stuff. So yeah. it's a dream, but it's not a dream. It's obviously really happening. But it's yeah. somehow his, how his brain is interpreting all of, all of the events. Well, what they're doing up there in that room is related to... This is a sacrifice they're making of some kind. She gives him the bowl, asks him to hold it in a certain position, then raises up the knife... Yes. To, obviously to slaughter this kid. And, and that's when we get a nice little action sequence here. In an instant, he had edged up the slanting floor around the end of the table and wrenched the knife from the old woman's claws, sending it clattering over the brink of the narrow triangular gulf. In another instant, however, matters were reversed, for those murderous claws had locked themselves tightly around his own throat while the wrinkled face was twisted with insane fury. He felt the chain of the cheap crucifix grinding into his neck, and in his peril wondered how the sight of the object itself would affect the evil creature. Her strength was altogether superhuman, but as she continued her choking, he reached feebly in his shirt and drew out the metal symbol, snapping the chain and pulling it free. At sight of the device, the witch seemed struck with panic, and her grip relaxed long enough to give Gilman a chance to break it entirely. He pulled the steel-like claws from his neck and would have dragged the beldam over the edge of the gulf had not the claws received a fresh access of strength and closed in again. This time he resolved to reply in kind, and his own hands reached out for the creature's throat. Before she saw what he was doing, he had the chain of the crucifix twisted around her neck, and a moment later he had tightened it enough to cut off her breath. During her last struggle, he felt something bite at his ankle and saw that Brown Jenkin had come to her aid. With one savage kick, he sent the morbidity over the edge of the gulf and heard it whimper on some level far below. That was a hard-hitting combat scene right there. Man, it took the witch and Brown Jenkin down. <laughs> I love this. It's really unlovecraftian. He takes action. He doesn't allow this to happen. He's not watching and fainting. 
he does a little choke out on the witch. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then he kicks Brown Jenkins' ass, literally. Now, this is a, a part that some people, uh, there's a contention here because it, the crucifix seems to work. Like, you know, like she's a vampire and the sight of it freaks her out. And we talked about this a little bit earlier where perhaps she has just a fear of Christianity from where she's from. But what's interesting about is, I mean, Ken, you talk about this in your book, that, that it's the chain that actually does her in. Yeah, you know, it's not um, a Hammer Films. She's not boiled alive by the side of the crucifix. He doesn't burn it into her flesh. None of that. She's briefly startled when he pulls the crucifix out and shoves it at her. So first of all, he's pulled a metal object out and shoved it at her. So she, we don't even know that she knows it's a crucifix. She might think it's a knife. She might think it's a gun. We don't know what she thinks. She's briefly startled. There, she suffers no supernatural flaw at all because it no. says that her horrible supernatural strength comes back and she starts choking him again. Yeah. So the, the crucifix doesn't weaken her. It doesn't send her scurrying to the other corner of the room. There, there's no supernatural impact of the crucifix whatsoever. She's startled to see it in his hand. He takes advantage of that brief moment of inattention because, as you say, he's, a, he's sort of an action hero for a Lovecraft character. And then... And, and this is what I think is one of the great Lovecraft, you know, black jokes at the expense of Christianity. The thing that kills the witch is not the power of the crucifix. It's being strangled to death by the nickel-plated chain around the crucifix. <laughs> <laughs> like they used to do to the witches in Salem, she's hung, she's strangled to death, right, by someone wielding yeah. the cross. Right. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful piece of... Uh, it's simultaneously, it's a great action sequence. It's black humor at Lovecraft's blackest. It, it has a nice historical resonance. I mean, the, I, I think this is this is one of the one of the great terrific moments in Lovecraft is that we have a really genuinely exciting fight scene. He's he's kicked the the, the Brown Jenkin into the abyss. Then we discover, oh no, it's too late. The baby is still dead. Yeah, that's the total bummer after for the whole thing because he looks over and then the baby, uh, its wrist had been bitten and its blood drained into the bowl. Mm-hmm. And the baby was dead. It, the baby died. It didn't. He didn't save him. You really can't. This rat is really the the real adversary. Yeah. The witch is almost more of a tool, but <laughs> Brown Jenkin managed to kill that kid while the fight was going on, and that's really too bad. Do you think? I, I maybe it's a stupid idea, but I thought maybe the angles of the crucifix would would disturb Kazai in some way. I mean, they are at right angles to each other. Maybe that in this place where strange non-Euclidean angles sort of reign. You don't want to bring something so normal. And uh... Frank Belknap Long um, in The Space Eaters, which came out, I think, in 1928, which is right around... I mean, Lovecraft writes this in 31, but it's he would have read Space Eaters, obviously. Uh-huh. Um, in Space Eaters, Long posits that the crucifix is the elder sign, that the, cro- the sign of the cross uh, prevents the Space Eaters from coming after you, and it implies that it's because of the geometry of the cross. That it's not necessarily, you know, it has anything to do with Jesus. It's that, you know, proper, decent Euclidean angles will uh, will protect you. And you get a little of that also with, with, with Long. I mean, not with the angles in this case, because his Hounds of Tyndalos can come through any angle, but a sphere will protect you. So the notion of protective geometry is is maybe something that is sort of in Lovecraft's mind. I, yeah. I, I think it, it's the sort of thing that you, you would certainly want to introduce if you're doing it in a, in a role-playing game or if you're trying to explain it in some other way. I mean, I think that just grabbing a metal object and shoving it in someone's face, Kaziah Mason is not, you know, a, a ninja. She's she's a, she's an old lady who casts witch spells in an attic. <laughs> exactly. End of the day, I mean, I think that there are lots of different ways you can make this work. 
without it defeating the entire non-Judeo-Christian mythology that Lovecraft has set up. And yeah, absolutely. What people don't like are some of the writers that came later who kind of made these things into good and evil, mor- moral, kind of applied morality to it. And Well, August Derleth does it a bit. Even Derleth does not have, you know, anyone using a crucifix no, or that's you know, true. That's prayers. True. I mean, I think that there's a bit where I think St. Augustine of Britain is a, is a warrior against the mythos in one of the Derleth stories. I imagine that it's a coincidence that he's also St. Augustine of Britain. He's not a warrior because of his sainthood. He's a warrior against the mythos because he's a good guy. Right. Now, Gilman has to make, he sees that unfortunately the child has been murdered anyway, and he's got to make a jump by himself if he wants to get out of this place. The violet light has gone out. The witch is on the floor dead. Dead, yeah. He presumes he choked her to death. Presumably, yeah. The ritual went through, so something yeah. bad's going to happen, and he needs to get out, but he doesn't know how to get out of this place. So he thinks, well, mm-hmm. I can jump into the void, and maybe, you know, that'll get me to where I need to go. But it also might get me stuck on another planet somewhere, or... Lost in time and space. Yeah, it's pretty. That's the most frightening thing for him. He has a pretty good idea that he might be able to escape and get and get back into the house, or he could end up in the ultimate void of chaos. <laughs> right. And so he does it. He makes the jump. They find Gilman on the floor uh, the next day. He's pretty much like catatonic. He's in a state of shock. There is bites on his ankles and there's marks on his neck yeah. like he was strangled. And Elwood and Joe find him and put him to bed. They call the doctor in to check him out. The doctor gives him some sedatives and he goes back to sleep. Yeah, this is probably why he shouldn't have seen a doctor before, right? Because the hypodermic injections, they put him out and that's not a good thing. Yeah. yeah. And and another thing too is Gilman's deaf. Now he had like super hearing before because in the story, you remember he mentioned at the very beginning, he mentions that he can just hear all these things. Here's he's chanting, here's the sound of the rest of the walls, but his eardrums have ruptured. As if he heard a really loud, 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 terrible noise. Yeah. Which nobody else heard in Arkham the night before, so they have no idea what could have done this. No. But, I mean, obviously traveling in the chaos void will, you know, do things to you. <laughs> but at this point, finally, Gilman and Elwood agreed to move out as soon as possible. Because there are reports that down by that white stone, which was out past uh, Meadow Hill. Yeah, there's a, there was a police raid. Nobody was captured, though. And there was, somebody said they saw a huge Negro out there. It sounds like it, it happened. But that's not, that's not the worst thing. The crowning horror came that very night. Elwood will never forget it and was forced to stay out of college the rest of the term because of the resulting nervous breakdown. He had thought he heard rats in the partitions all the evening but paid little attention to them. Then, long after both he and Gilman had retired, the atrocious shrieking began. Elwood jumped up, turned on the lights, and rushed over to his guest's couch. The occupant was emitting sounds of veritably inhuman nature, as if racked by some torment beyond description. He was writhing under the bedclothes, and a great red stain was beginning to appear on the blankets. Elwood scarcely dared to touch him, but gradually the screaming and writhing subsided. By this time, Dombrowski, Koyensky, Desrochers, Mazurowitz, and the top-floor lodger were all crowding into the doorway, and the landlord had sent his wife back to telephone for Dr. Malkowski. Everybody shrieked when a large, rat-like form suddenly jumped out from beneath the ensanguined bedclothes and scuttled across the floor to a fresh open hole close by. When the doctor arrived and began to pull down those frightful covers, Walter Gilman was dead. It would be barbarous to do more than suggest what had killed Gilman. There had been virtually a tunnel through his body. Something had eaten his heart out. Dombrowski, frantic at the failure of his constant rat-poisoning efforts, cast aside all thought of his lease, and within a week had moved with all his older lodgers to a dingy but less ancient house in Walnut Street. 
The worst thing for a while was keeping Joe Mazurowitz quiet, for the brooding loom fixer would never stay sober and was constantly whining and muttering about spectral and terrible things. So this was uh, Brown Jenkins' revenge for killing Kazaya. He ate his heart out from the inside? Yeah. How could you possibly stop something like that? Something that has the ability to go into your body through trans-dimensional means and then eat your heart out. It's just indefensible. It's so freaky. And another thing that they mentioned, too, is that there's tiny little footprints that are in the shape of a human hand. Well, there were no footprints. It was four tiny human hands. And I guess until this point, I didn't really... I pictured that he had oh, almost like the fly. You know, the fly has the human head and the one human hand. Yeah. I always assumed that his front two paws were hands, but you know, he has four hands. Oh, right. Yeah. Which is very disturbing for some reason. Yeah. That's extra weird. Well, the house is never rented again, and health officials, there's this terrible smell coming from the building, and they trace it to the closed spaces above that room, but decide... It's probably not worth our while to open it up and disinfect it. Because it's been condemned. The building's condemned. Nobody's dealing with it ever. And after that, too, there were no more appearances of Kazai or Brown Jenkin. At least none that Elwood hears of. There's some reference that he he heard about the matter afterward from some local whispers and I I think some newspapers report on something that happened, which is this. In March, there was the Great Gale that uh, wrecked the roof and the great chimney of the house. So his room gets knocked in by a tree or something like that. Right, but nobody actually ends up checking it out until December. Right, when it was cleared out by reluctant workmen. <laughs> no, I, I, I just left them. It sits there for um, for eight months before they, they get around to clearing it out. So imagine what that says about the rest of this neighborhood in Arkham, right? Yeah. The, you've got the, the tree has fallen into the roof. It, it smells like there's a dead body up there, but still it takes until December for the reluctant, apprehensive workmen to start digging through the rubble. Yeah. I mean, frankly, if if I was, you know, a workman and they said, yeah, you're going to go dig through the rubble of that place where the tree smashed it in, in March that smells like dead bodies, I'd be reluctant and apprehensive. Well, I mean, I think what it says about it, which to me is what I got out of it, is that it took that long before they found anybody that would be willing to actually go up and do it. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. That house is so cursed that any of the any of the neighbor or any of the people that lived around there, the workmen just wouldn't do it. They're just like, forget it. I'm not yeah. going up there. I'm not going up there. And finally they found some guys that go, well, I guess nothing's happened yet, so it's probably safe. You know, I'll go up there <laughs> now. No rat guys have jumped out of there in the last few months. What they find up there is uh, some bones, badly crushed and splintered, but human, definitely human bones. Which is puzzling. And also the fact that the bones uh, belong to a small child. Mm-hmm. And there were some brownish clothes uh, undersized that maybe belonged to a female of advanced years. And lots and lots of rat bones. And lots yeah. and lots of rat bones that had marks in them, gnawed marks of small fangs. They also find uh, remnants of some kind of library. There's a lot of books and papers, which all seem to deal with black magic. The terrifying thing is that there's handwriting and marks on all of these papers that suggest age differences of at least 150 to 200 years, but they, they, they cross a huge span of time. So somebody has been up there making notes on things. And updating their library, right? That the, the books and the watermarks in the paper can be up to 200 years uh, in span, right? So the oldest book in there is 200 years older than the youngest book. So that implies that someone has been continuously updating a library over two centuries and then writing their notes in the margins. And the writing's the same the whole time, so it's pretty crazy. They find, uh, don't they find another elder thing 
what is it, a statue or a... Uh, well, the bowl. The bowl is made of uh, the strange material, too, and it's got hieroglyphics on it. Right. They find like, some, some kind of idol or something, though, I think. Yeah, they find a bluish stone idol made of uh, a badly damaged mon- monstrosity, plainly resembling the strange image which Gilman gave to the College Museum, save that it is larger and pre- possessed of a singularly angled pedestal uh, with undecipherable hieroglyphics. And remember, this is now March of 1931. The expedition from Antarctica is coming back, and... So it excites several Miskatonic professors profoundly when they find the idol of the elder thing in that attic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is not all that they find up there, which is strange. In the midst of this debris, wedged between a fallen plank and a cluster of cemented bricks from the ruined chimney, was an object destined to cause more bafflement, veiled fright, and openly superstitious talk in Arkham than anything else discovered in the haunted and accursed building. This object was the partly crushed skeleton of a huge, diseased rat, whose abnormalities of form are still a topic of debate and source of singular reticence among the members of Miskatonic's Department of Comparative Anatomy. Very little concerning this skeleton is leaked out, but the workmen who found it whisper in shocked tones about the long, brownish hairs with which it was associated. The bones of the tiny paws, it is rumored, imply prehensile characteristics more typical of a diminutive monkey than of a rat, while the small skull, with its savage yellow fangs, is of the utmost anomalousness, appearing from certain angles like a miniature, monstrously degraded parody of a human skull. The workmen crossed themselves in fright when they came upon this blasphemy, but later burned candles of gratitude in St. Stanislaus Church because of the shrill, ghostly tittering they felt they would never hear again. And that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. I was a little. Con- uh, I found this curious because it's um, obviously it's supposed to be the the body of, of Brown Jenkin. What happened? How did he? How did he meet his end? I, I think that Brown Jer- Brown Jenkin dies when the chimney collapses in the gale, right? Because it says that his body is found crushed under those bricks. Oh, okay. And yep. so obviously, when Brown Jenkin is not you know wandering around in hyperspace, he has as his. He, he lives in that house, right? That's where his, his physical body uh, exists when it's when it's on Earth, his base of operations. Yeah. It's just the, the good luck that he happens to be in, up in the attic when the gale hits, and uh, he's crushed by all those falling blocks. I see. Yeah. Okay. So then finally, there is a bit of cosmic justice, sort of, but a little, you know, kind of a daylight and a dollar short, really. Or, or he took, maybe he, uh, after Kazaya was done in, then he really had no reason to be around there anymore. So maybe he just left the body behind and somehow traveled somewhere else. That's that's a, a definite possibility too. This is one of those stories that I loved it when I was younger. When I recently reread it, I kind of was disappointed in it, and then when I started doing my notes on it, I fell back in love with it again. I wrote as my note here. When I read this first, I liked it. Reading again, didn't care for it other than for its atmosphere. And doing notes and talking it over, I liked it again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I love this story because I love the the, the sort of the crazy physics of it. I love the uh, meta story that it's part of. I mean that that for me is the one of the real trippy parts of Lovecraft that and the the notion of um, primordial intelligences like Cthulhu or like the the Elder Things is is the other really great thing to me. But I love the the, the way that Lovecraft is taking at the, at that time really cutting edge physics and writing ghost stories about it. I mean that's just phenomenal to imagine that he's that, that someone is doing that. I mean no one is certainly doing that now with cutting edge physics. No one is doing ghost stories about super string theory. Oh, really? I thought there was a lot of super string theory in Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
<laughs> that's a have, vampire story, right. Chad. That is not a ghost story. Oh, sorry. sorry. Duh. No, Chad believes that um, uh, Jacob is actually dead and it's a ghost of a werewolf. What? <laughs> but if you read it right, that's how you understand it. Ken, we'll definitely have to have you on our Twilight podcast that we're starting. That's right. Yes, the yeah. Twilightcast. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, God, that's horrific. You did hit on one of my greatest fears, which is the ghost of a werewolf. <laughs> oh, hey, hey, hey. Do you remember that that is actually a Lovecraft story? He did it as a team-up. Oh, yeah. What is that? It's the one he did with, with Eddie, mm-hmm. the ghost eater. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. The ghost eater's got a, got a ghost werewolf. It's got a ghost werewolf in it. I don't even like thinking about it. I know. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty scary. Well, uh, some, some background on this story. Uh, it was written in, in February of 1932 and got published in Weird Tales in July 1933. It was, the working title of it was Dreams of Walter Gilman, but Witch House sounds way cooler than Walter Gilman. Lovecraft wrote in a correspondence that, that Durleth that he sent it to Durleth, and Durleth thought it, it, it wasn't a good story. But this is what Lovecraft says. He says, Durleth didn't say it was unsaleable. In fact, he rather thought it would sell. He said it was a poor story, which is entirely different, a much more lamentably important thing. Lovecraft responded to Durleth, your reaction to my poor dreams in the witch house is in kind about what I expected, although I hardly thought the miserable mess was quite as bad as you found it. The whole incident shows me that my fictional days are probably over. Aww. Which I think that's totally sad. But Durleth went and took it and gave it to to Farnsworth Wright to try and sell it. And Farnsworth goes, "Yeah, I'll totally publish this." And uh, sold it to Lovecraft, or Lovecraft sold it for one hundred and forty dollars. So it got published, and deservedly so. It's a terrific story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm I the thing that when Lovecraft says that my fictional days are probably over seemed to be a little bit of a pity party to me yeah well unfortunately they're about to be come true right I mean I don't think that he knew that he was dying I think he just felt bad that the story wasn't as good as he hoped it was yeah when Farnsworth said yeah I'll publish it and I got published then he probably obviously he still kept writing fiction it didn't stop him well I've had that happen before where you write something and you say hey could you give me a couple of notes and the notes are this is f***ing terrible <laughs> you think, well, geez, I, I thought there were some flaws, but I didn't know it was that bad. Right, right, right. It happens. Yeah, it happens. It happens. It hurt. It hurts your feelings. There's really. still a few, a few Lovecraft uh, stories that I'm excited about. That he obviously doesn't actually feel that way, and he still has to write Shadows Out of Time and uh, yeah, sure. and Hunter in the Dark. And I personally like um, Thing on the Doorstep. So he still has some good stories in him. Ken, do you have any last thoughts? I should mention that I uh, got to be um, uh, at the uh, world premiere of the play uh, based on Dreams in the Witch House uh, done by Charlie Sherman for Chicago's Wild Claw Theater. And I got to, in, in my role as the guy who gets to write about Lovecraft for Weird Tales magazine, I got to uh, be at the, the premiere of the of the play and you know talk a little bit about Lovecraft. And Sherman takes it as he took it as uh, into sort of a, a, a noir in which all of Arkham is complicit in this series of, of baby murders and cult oh, wow. killings and witchcraft and that Gilman is almost a, a passive version of, of Sam Spade and that he can he's continuously being brutalized and as he's brutalized more of the truth of, of, of Arkham is revealed and I thought that was a pretty interesting take on it that huh. you, you, you look at it as Lovecraft obviously doesn't really intend to indict all of Arkham 
as um uh, as as part of this uh, this witch no. cult either by omission or commission. The the notion that these babies have been disappearing every wall purchase knocked for you know maybe a hundred years, and the cops can never be bothered to do anything about it because they're just Polish kids, they're immigrant children. When you take it in in, in a non Lovecraftian in the sense of of a modernist social conscience type approach. The story gets, in a, in a lot of ways, even better because you're you're really talking about a town that's not just haunted by witches and haunted by gambrel roofs. It's haunted by the fact that they hate and uh, disdain the the immigrant population that that lives among them. That you have this, you know, hundred years of of baby killing or however many years Kazai has been up to it, and no one's bothered to do anything until one grad student, you know, just climbs up into the attic and chokes her to death with a with a crucifix chain. <laughs> so. I mean, in, in that way, it is kind yeah. of a, it, it is kind of a, a, a valuable approach to look at it as, as a noir, as a guy who's the one person who's willing to walk where no one else is going to walk, literally, in this case, through the fourth dimension, even though he knows it's going to kill him. Like you say, you know, the, the sensible thing would be, you know what, I'm going to leave my uh, books in the, in the attic room and I'm going to go back to Haverhill and I'm going to work in a department store. But that's not what he does. And whether he does because he's trapped there or because he realizes that if he doesn't, no one else will, I think that's, that's kind of a nice thing. And it's certainly, watching that play, it was a, it was a very interesting way to look at the story. Yeah. Now, uh, are you going to continue to write with Weird Tales? I know they've had some change in editors. I have not heard yet one way or the other. I, I know that there's one more issue that the previous um, uh, editor put together, and okay. I'm part of that. But I have not heard yet from uh, the new publisher as to whether or not uh, Lost in Lovecraft will continue with them. I, I hope okay. it does because it's, it's, it's terrific. I, I really like writing those pieces, and I really like being in Weird Tales. So. Well, I like reading them, so I hope it does continue. Well, I think that about uh, wraps it up for uh, The Dreams in the Witch House. Uh, Ken, I thank you so much for being on, on, on the show I've, over these past few episodes. It's just been it's been great having you on, and, and this has been one of my favorite ones to record. Whether it turns out good or not, uh, it'll <laughs> to be seen. It'll be terrific, I'm sure. No, I, it's, been, it, it's been great. I mean, I, I, love, I love being on the podcast, and I really love being on the podcast when it's a story that I really get into and I really dig. So I, I'm really glad that I got to, you know, sort of um, swing the bat for Lovecraft on, on this story because, because, like you say, a lot of people tear it down um, based on what I think are fundamental misconceptions about the story. Hmm. That's all we have for today. We'll be back next time with a story called The Man of Stone, I believe. Yep, this is another collaboration, but this time it's with a new authoress, Hazel Heald, a special team-up Marvel style. <laughs> All right, well, that's what we're covering next time. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us as we did these episodes. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Kenneth Hype. And this has been HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Oh, HPPodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!